Hello and welcome back to the Believe at Chelsea podcast. I'm your host Rob Prattley and today we're going to be covering Chelsea's tr- dramatic and in many ways frustrating draw against Tottenham Hotspur in the Premier League, looking at transfer news and we've also got the introduction of the long-awaited Chelsea FC quiz so we can crown who truly has the best piece of obscure Chelsea trivia knowledge. Now, as I promised before, it wouldn't just be me today doing this podcast. I know last week everyone had to just listen to my voice for 30 minutes, which is probably incredibly tiresome. So instead, I've brought along a guest. Now, what can I say about this man? I think the first thing he would say is that he once shared an ice cream with Gianfranco Zola because it's in his Twitter bio. More recently, I've discovered that uh, he does have a habit of falling for bait Twitter accounts, um, certainly in the last 24 hours. And uh, I also know for a fact that he's a particular big fan of one of Chelsea's transfer targets that we're going to discuss later. I am, of course, talking about Mr. Adam Newsom, uh, writer for Football London. Adam, how are you today? I'm all right. I'm all right. That, 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 that's a little dig to bait Twitter accounts. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, all right. I was say, yeah, as I said yesterday, it's hot. I've been, I was very tired. It was an easy mistake to make. It was easy. Oh. Yeah, it, it's sad that I believed that that Robert Lewandowski would be surprised at the level of defending in La Liga. But then when you watch the Bundesliga, you probably get why I maybe thought they was talking. It was actually legit. Anyway, I, let's let's move on. And it, that Jeff Franco's only thing. Daniel Charles keeps giving me grief about that as well. So I, you're in good company. I, I mean, I'm curious to know, like I feel the important question is for everyone, what kind of ice cream was did, did Mr. Zola go for? Honestly, it was about seven years ago, so I can't remember. Um, but he owns a, a, a chain of ice cream parlors um, in London, uh, and I was I was invited. I was invited along to the opening of the first one. Uh, this was when I was covering Watford, so we actually were talking about Watford, not Chelsea. No, of course that makes total sense. Again, I that's actually genuinely superb. I feel like I now I'm just going to visit them on the off chance that Mr. Zola one day walks in. I just I feel you, like that's definitely worth it. I'll tell you the rest of the story very quickly. It was it was a very it was a very surreal morning for me going to this ice cream parlor where Gian, to speak to Gianfranco Zola, and in over the course of that morning, uh, Robbie Di Matteo, Dennis Wise, and uh, Andrei Chevchenko turned up as well. That's that's honestly brilliant. That's super, <laughs> that is, yeah, that, yeah. I don't know how. To that, I mean, that's yeah, that's absolutely wonderful. Um, so today, as I said, our main topic of discussion is Chelsea's draw against Tottenham Hotspur. Um, before the game, Adam, would you have taken a point from this fixture, knowing Chelsea's record in it, knowing how much everyone's bigging up Tottenham this season, and the fact that you know Chelsea seem to have been in perennial crisis for the last three months? Yes, I would have. Um, even though I knew Chelsea's record, obviously, at Stamford Bridge against Tottenham's very strong. I just looked at those opening day performances and Chelsea looked uh, quite sluggish against Everton, um, didn't look like they were in rhythm at all. Um, more as sort of a continuation of what we saw in America, really, in the pre-season games. Um, and then you contrast that to what Tottenham did on the opening day. You know, they, they beat Southampton comfortably. They looked very, very fit. They looked like they were fully up to speed. So going into it, I was um, expecting a very strong Tottenham performance, if I'm honest. Um, so what Chelsea produced did surprise me uh, pleasantly. Um, I thought they were very good. They were the back to the, to the levels that we haven't really seen since uh, they played at the Bernabeu against Real Madrid. Um, I thought they were excellent um, and they were obviously very unfortunate in the end. 
for a variety of different reasons, which are we are going to talk about, I'm sure, um, that they didn't get all three points. Mm, indeed. Just so everyone is aware, if you didn't watch the game, Chelsea lined up in, I'm going to go and describe it as a 4-3-3 formation, but I'm sure that will be contested by some people, of the uh, Edouard Mendy in goal, a back four of Rhys James, Kalidou Koulibaly, Thiago Silva and Mark Kukurea, a midfield of Angolo Conte, Jorginho and Ruben Loftus-Cheek, and a front three of Mason Mount, Kai Havertz and Raheem Sterling. And Chelsea's goal scorers on the day, the first goal was a pretty impressive volley from the new number 26 from Kalidou Koulibaly. I mean, I think as far as first goals go for defenders, you don't get much better than a Thunderbolt volley in a London derby. No, I mean, if you're going to take that number 26 shirt, you need to, to get a goal against Spurs in your CV. So I was very pleased for him. And it was an absolutely fantastic strike. I mean, you're not going to see much sort of cleaner contact from an in sort of outswinging corner. So you know, it was a great moment that and a, so a, a wonderful goal and, and a great way to really open your account for your new club. Mm, and it was really good, I think, to see Kukurea on the corners. I think one thing I was personally a little bit concerned about on the opening day especially was the our paucity from corners and I'm not going to say it necessarily improved hugely in this game because there were a number of poor set pieces but it was good to see Kukurea really get some good swing on it and pick out Koulibaly at the back post I think it was intentional to try and you know pick out the player rather than just sort of get it towards the edge of the box yeah I think it was very much uh designed like that and as you say not every um not every set piece delivery really hit the money um, on Sunday, which I'm sure uh, would have been frustrating. But credit to, um, of course, credit to Anthony Barry, who still very much is is overseeing Chelsea's set piece routines. He obviously identified a weakness in how Tottenham set up um, and uh, made sure Chelsea exploited it. Uh, It's just a shame, really, that they uh, probably let themselves down as the game went on Mm, from set pieces in both boxes, I guess. Yeah, no, no, I definitely agree. And I think coming on to... One of the sort of main points I want to discuss, I think Chelsea's success in the first half really came due to the unique role that Loftus-Cheek played. Now, again, I sort of said 4-3-3, but I think you can make arguments to actually say at times it was more of a sort of Loftus-Cheek in that wing-back role in sort of more of a 3-4-3. And also, some people said to me, viewing it more as a 4-2-4 formation with how high Loftus-Cheek was playing up the pitch. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, obviously, were you at the game? I was, yes. I, was, yeah, I, 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 I thought, I thought, I thought you were. I just wanted to check because I know sometimes you're some of the live ones, and sometimes you're just reduced to to manning the online blog. Um, I know the uh, we've lost the cheek when you were watching it live in the stadium. Did you did you cotton on initially that Loftus Cheek was playing in that sort of bizarre free role on the right, or did it sort of come to surprise you midway through the game? So I was told in the build-up actually that it was going to be something like a 4-2-2-2 and Ruben would be basically filling in uh, at right wing-back when Chelsea didn't have the ball. So it didn't really surprise me the role he played. Um, I guess the way he played it probably did because I thought he was excellent. Um, I thought he was excellent probably until the final maybe sort of 10 metres uh, when, again, you probably saw the one thing that Ruben is is probably lacking is that is that composure in the final third, maybe that mm. decision-making, just to, to play the pass at the right time or to make that split-second decision, just get it bang on. I think that's probably the only thing, really, that was missing on, on Sunday. Um, you know, look, I've, I've always loved Loftus-Cheek. I think if you wanted to build a prototype midfield player, 
I mean, given his his ability on the ball, his physical frame, the fact he can, once he gets going, he, he's actually quite swift across the ground. I mean, there's so much to like about Ruben in terms of what he could add to your team. Um, it's just we've been waiting for it all to come together. And um, like, as I say, I thought, I thought he was very impressive um, on Sunday. I thought he uh, handled himself well. You know, he, he got back when needed. He offered actually Chelsea a good out ball against Ryan Sessingham as well. Uh, because of the sort of the height difference between those two, um, and it will be interesting to see what happens now. Because obviously, you know, Matteo Kovacic is out injured, and Golo Kante sadly seems like he'll be out for a little while with a with an injury as well. You know, things maybe open up in that midfield spot um, for him. But then, obviously, you know, you've got competition still from Jorginho, Conor Gallagher's in in the building now as well. So yeah, it will be interesting to see how Tuchel handles him going forward. But uh, as a as a sort of alternative right wing back to Reese James, or a, a potential option to to look to this season, I mean, to me, it probably is a is a safer bet than maybe spending forty million on on Denzel Dumfries, who, whilst a very good right wing back, I don't think is going to usurp Reese James and, and would become a squad player as well. Mm, yeah, no, no, I definitely agree. I think the loss was cheap. The thing that summed up the. The elements of the performance I really like and also the frustration about him. There were two moments that really summed it up. First, it was that brilliant run he made very, at the right at the end of the first half to get in behind Sessignon for that header and then mistiming the header and completely, you know, that should have been yeah. nil and game over. And then in the second half, that driving run where, again, I think it was Sessignon again, he uh, went past and sort of went into the box and took on several players and, again, took too long to play the pass, eventually it came to Sterling who put it over the bar. But it's those situations, again, where you want to just see that little bit more sort of composure from him. I mean, overall, I think Chelsea did play very well. Again, obviously, we talked about the Kula Valley goal. Spurs did bring it back to 1-1, which I think leads us nicely into sort of this debate about refereeing. Um, did you think that the first goal, for either of the two reasons, either the challenge on Havertz or the potential offside against Richarlison, should have been disallowed? So I thought the foul on Havertz was personally too far back um, mm-hmm. to, to truly make it a worthwhile discussion. Sure. Um, I think it was 44 seconds or something, I, I think I heard it was. So Do, do you for me, that it was a foul, though? I mean, watching it live, I think it was a foul. Um, I haven't, I mean, I, I think I've seen a replay of it where it's slowed down, super slow-mo, and, and maybe Romero gets, uh, was it Romero? Uh, or Benton Cursor, wasn't it? Um, got a touch on the ball. Um, but I think he got Kai's, Kai's ankle first. So I do think it was a foul, but look, lots has happened, a lot happened since, uh, sorry, after that incident. Um, the Richarlison one for me is probably the bigger, bigger thing to moan about because I've, I've seen the, you know, I've watched that back and there is a point just before, Hoiberg shoots where Mendy is peering around Richarlison to get a view of, of the ball. Now that is interfering with play, obviously, and, and the fact that Richarlison moves towards the ball's trajectory as well means that Mendy can't truly commit to his dive until mm. the ball has gone beyond Richarlison because, because, you know, all it takes is a nick. And, and so, in my opinion, that should have been spotted by the VAR, who was Mike Dean. That isn't necessarily Anthony Taylor's fault. Um, yeah. You know, he 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 can't see uh, the line. So that one for me was was a VAR decision that that Mike Dean got wrong, rather than a, an absolute shocker from Anthony Taylor. Albeit with with the caveat, of course, that there was a foul uh, long before on on Havertz. Mm, sure, and then obviously, I think fueled by that element of injustice, Chelsea did come forward and attack. We had the 
the very poor Kai Havertz miss, which we'll, we'll move on to when we talk about the striking sort of issues the club have. But obviously they did go 2-1 up. Um, Chelsea again getting in down, this time down the left-hand side against Emerson. Uh, not Emerson Palmer even, not Emerson. Um, Emerson Royale, put <laughs> the right Emerson. Um, and uh, played inside to Raheem Sterling and picked out the right pass and found Reese James. And at that point, I do feel that probably that was justice done because I think Chelsea deserved to be ahead. They were the superior side through the game. Um, do you think Chelsea at that point maybe should have, they made some quite offensive changes because they brought on Broya subsequently after that and didn't really try and shore it up. Do you think they'd have been better off looking to maybe shore up the system? Uh, to be honest, no, I think it's, it's obviously better with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, mate, you can argue that, but I thought Chelsea did well in those final minutes. You know, I, I didn't think Tottenham were mounting huge pressure. Obviously, how the goal came about, you know, there was, you know, Tucker wasn't happy with the the free kick that, that first sort of sparked the, the string of corners because he felt that, that Reese James' barge into uh, Harry Kane wasn't anything more than what we'd seen throughout the game that had been let go. Um, mm. I think Tucker was, was in favour of some consistency on that part. And then obviously, you know, that leads to the corner. You have the corner. <laughs> Chris uh, Romero decides to, to take Kukurea out. Um, by pulling his hair rather viciously, it has to be said. I didn't see it live since in replays, and it's quite a firm pull. Yeah. Obviously, at that point, VAR should step in. Red card for Romero for violent conduct. Free kick to Chelsea. Mendy takes it, and, and probably that's a full-time whistle. So it's unfortunate the way it played out. I mean, it watched, my feeling within the game was that you know Chelsea weren't hanging on by the skin, you know, the skin of their tee. I think they were they were okay. So. Mm. Um, I don't think Tuchel got it wrong. I actually think, you know, as you said, he got it right uh, in, in, in after Tottenham had equalised with that shift for, for Reese James because it's ultimately what enabled Chelsea to have the overload um, and, and Reese scored um, what should have probably been the winner with, with better officiating. Mm, yeah, and I think that, that comes on again to sort of try and not dwell too much on the refereeing issue because I don't want to sit and just rant about Anthony Taylor. I think, you know, Chelsea fans... Opinions on Anthony Taylor is well known. The club's opinion on Anthony Taylor is well known. But uh, overall, would you say you think the officials cost Chelsea the game? Yes, I think in the strictest sense, yes, because <laughs> you know both goals should have been ruled out. Um, but let's not overlook the for as good as Chelsea were, for as well as they moved the ball, um, for as well as they moved across the pitch. For the for the Harry Kane um, equaliser, I mean, the marking from that corner is really, really poor. Yeah. Um, I think there's maybe three or four players inside the, the six-yard box who are actually free from a Tottenham perspective. So, yes, of course, you could be frustrated, but it's the last action of the game that, and Chelsea, if they were maybe a bit more switched on, if they are maybe a bit more ready to attack that ball that came into the box, maybe they still come away with the victory. And I think, you, you know, as much as the referee did play a role and VAR did play a role had Chelsea just switched on a little more for that last corner um, apologies then I think they uh, they would have got the win yeah no I do, I do I do agree and I think it's important to not just mitigate that and I think on in terms of talking about getting the win I think that comes quite nicely onto the issue talking about the striking issue for Chelsea because I think you know even without poor offici- officiating with a top centre-forward on the pitch um, or a clinical centre-forward, Chelsea could easily have been 
two or three up before Tottenham even scored. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of debate about the striker situation. At the moment, obviously, Havertz is leading the line. I thought Havertz had an OK game besides his finishing. Um, I thought he led the line quite well. He battled well up against um, Romero and up against the Tottenham defenders. But it's that finishing that still remains a sort of big question mark. And obviously, Broya came on and showed some neat touches in a cameo, but not too much to really judge on him. From your perspective, do you think until Chelsea fix the striking issue, they're not really going to be in a situation to compete at the very, very top level? So I think this is incredibly difficult because I felt against uh, Tottenham, what we saw was Tuchel's probably tactical ideals realised in the sense of an, an attacking from an attacking perspective. The, say, the rotation between Havertz, Mount and Sterling was excellent. The ability uh, and understanding from each of them, you know, if one dropped in, one would go to the false nine role. I mean, it meant that Chelsea, even though they were playing a back three, of uh, you know, back three, back five, it meant Chelsea were able to constantly find little gaps to exploit. And it's probably what Tuchel wants to see from, from his attack. He wants some predictability. He wants uh, fluidity. Um, the problem is, if you add a... It's, it's what kind of profile, I guess, a forward you add to this. Because mm-hmm. we've seen with Romelu Lukaku, if you add a more static forward, it, it breaks down quite quickly, not only in possession, but out of possession, because you don't have the same uh, level of, of pressing ability. Um, it's why the continued Cristiano links uh, make no sense to me, because you just end up being back in the same situation at Chelsea were in last season, um, albeit with probably a man who has a, an even bigger ego than, than Romelu Lukaku. Um, so... Yes, you can argue Chelsea need another forward, but I think it's probably the, the profile of forward, which is the most important thing if Chelsea do bring one in. Mm. Maybe Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is a happy medium because we know he's played out wide before, um, earlier in his career, and he, he tends to drift out wide anyway, so maybe that can work. But at 33, how much of a long-term solution is that for you? Um, maybe it is a good stopgap until uh, a, sort of a, a younger player emerges potentially over the next year and a half um, to two years but yes Chelsea do need somebody to step up and take those chances they create if it's not going to be Kai Havertz um, then yes that option of of finding someone in the transfer market is there but you know just from my personal perspective as I've explained I think Chelsea can't get sucked into just thinking we need a goal scorer let's go out and sign a goal scorer they have to sign the right profile because otherwise we'll just run into problems again um, mm. and that's the last thing that probably Chelsea need this season is, is another Lukaku situation uh, yeah I, I tend to agree and you know actually again you've teamed me up very very nicely there to talk about transfers and particularly about the man first on the list in Pierre and Michael Bamiang would you rather see Chelsea give sign Bamiang or give Broya the starting berth for say the next 10 games uh, I'm going to be somewhat, I probably am somewhat biased here and, and would say that I'd, I'd probably prefer Breuer just to, to have a run to see one way or the other um, because we've seen too many talented academy players before um, come back from a good loan. And I don't think uh, Armando's loan was probably as, as strong as some people would really want to, to mm-hmm. make out. You know, I think he had a good, good sort of winter period and, and sort of tailed off. But, you know, there is something there to work with um, if you're Thomas Tuchel. Um, so I think I would quite like to see Roya given a run. Um, whether or not that's going to happen is, is debatable. But, you know, 
Aubameyang, you know what you'll get, I guess. He's he's sort of a more, he is the finished product, but at 33, you know, there's always that risk, even though we've seen with players like Thiago Silva, who uh, maybe is a bit of a medical marvel, but um, at 33, you're always kind of waiting for that physical drop-off. And, and given how much Aubameyang's game is about pace and explosiveness, I mean, there's always that risk when you sign a player that, that within six months they sort of lose that and then suddenly you're left with a player who can't do what what they sort of instinctively want to do and that, and that creates problems in itself. As Chelsea have seen down the years with players like Fernando Torres. Mm, yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that. And I think Aubameyang, it's worth noting, I think he's an excellent finisher and I think he does guarantee goals, but I also think you have to consider the the political side of the transfer in that, Obviously, I'm sure. So, I don't know if you've had a chance to watch the uh, Amazon documentary yet, but um, I've seen a couple of episodes. I've not hit the Aubameyang stuff yet. I've seen it. Yeah, Aubameyang doesn't come out brilliant in that. Although at the same time, I've been told that other players at Arsenal do feel that way as well, and that you know Arteta is considered to be a bit of a Marmite character too. Oh, keep um, keep in mind that the club has approval on these as well. Yeah, well, so exactly that. You and see you know, what the club want you to see. Exactly that. And also with Aubameyang, he has spoken multiple times about his relationship with Thomas Tuchel. Um, and again, he has a similar relationship with Tuchel, similar to that that Lukaku has with Antonio Conte. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, I think Aubameyang, if you want someone in, I mean, certainly the interest is there. I was told that Chelsea do intend to bid again, um, whether that bid reaches his evaluation. Barcelona are increasingly accepting they're probably going to need to either sell one of De Jong or sell Aubameyang, get Monfis off the wage bill, get some money for Dest and probably sell someone else in order to keep De Jong and also sign Bernardo Silva as they continue to shake the magic money tree. But I don't know if you've heard anything else, you know, transfer-wise on Aubameyang? Not beyond the fact that he is quite settled in, in Barcelona. I'm not sure what you've spoken about previously, but um, but he is he's settled in Barcelona. So it's going to take some work on Chelsea's part and probably took us to, to lure him over if, if Barcelona are accepting of, a, of an offer. Um, because, you know, he's only been there six months and uh, I think it might have been David Ornstein who reported in The Athletic as well that he's recently bought a house. Um, mm. So, yeah, doing that and then suddenly, he's, you know, upping sticks again is a, is never an easy thing to do, especially when he's got young children. So, um, so yeah, it's going to be a, an interesting one just to see how that plays out. Mm. And uh, coming on to, you know, interesting ones that's going to be interesting to see how they play out. Uh, Chelsea's interest in Anthony Gordon has suddenly become quite strong in the last few days. Um, we know there have been at least two bids made. Both of them have been rejected. Um, the player is allegedly quite keen on the move now. Everton themselves are blocking the transfer. I've been told by my sources that this is very much a Tuchel pick. Tuchel was very impressed in the way both he played last week and also how he played against Chelsea at the end of last season. He likes how direct he is. He likes how fast he is. He likes the fact that he's got a bit of a um, gamesmanship streak in him. I think that's the phrase <laughs> probably used. Anthony Gordon, your thoughts on the player and also on the potential transfer? It's, yeah, this one does interest me because I, I like Anthony Gordon. I think there's a, a lot of potential there to work with it. And I can see the attraction on Tuckle's part um, with that. I guess I'm looking at it going right. If Chelsea are, if Chelsea are willing to let Callum Hudson-Odoi go, uh, probably on loan. If they're willing to to let Hakim Ziyech go, if the right bids arrive, I mean Christian Pulisic isn't happy with his role, and I think had had the right offer arrived for Pulisic, which doesn't appear to have done all summer, then maybe there could have been a deal there. I mean, 
is is Anthony Gordon an, a massive upgrade on any of these guys? Is he a forty five million pound plus upgrade on any of these guys? Does he dramatically improve the Chelsea attack? I'm not sure. Uh, to be completely honest. Um, does he go into the starting eleven when you've got Mount Havertz Sterling? I mean, I'd, I'd argue probably no. So is it worth is it worth committing that much money to somebody who won't be uh, sort of a, a guaranteed starter or necessarily hugely improve the quality of, of your squad? That's probably where I'm at with this at the moment. Um, I can see the attraction, but from a wider perspective, it, it does confuse me a little bit and I can understand why Anthony Gordon would, would want to come to Chelsea. You know, yes, he's a local lad, but it's, it's a big opportunity um, for him potentially. Uh, but I always just try and keep in mind, obviously, you know, there's always two sides to this and, and Newcastle United are, are interested in Anthony Gordon as well. Uh, I believe he's, there's sort of a contract uh, on the table for him as, at Everton um, as well. Mm. And it's never, it's never not timely when the contract discussions are going on for there suddenly to be a lot of interest in you. Mm. Um, so yeah we'll see how it plays out um, it's not one that I would be you know thinking this is the best piece of business Chelsea have done from you know for a while but it's also one that I can you know I can probably get on board with depending on uh, depending on what price it gets up to I would imagine uh, mm. is what I would say what, what price would be your maximum? I mean I think probably Chelsea have reached it already so uh, <laughs> So we'll see. But look, it, it, Everton seems to be wanting, you know, holding out for 50, which for me is an awful lot of money for, for mm-hmm. Anthony Gordon. But uh, but we'll see how that one comes. You know, there's two weeks and a bit left of the transfer window. And don't get me wrong, there's going to be an absolute list of names that Chelsea are suddenly interested in and, and uh, in the next two weeks. Whether or not there'll be substance of any of those, we'll, uh, well, that's left to us to try and, and find out. Indeed. One name that we can now say is officially joining Chelsea um, and the deal is extremely close to being done is Cesare Casadai coming in from Inter Milan for about 15 million euro plus add-ons. Um, the medical apparently in the next 48 hours. It sounds like Chelsea are trying to construct, you know, the greatest PL2 side on earth with Hutchinson, Webster, Vale, <laughs> uh, Chuck Wemeka, Casadai. Uh, Zach Sturge, again, it's you know becoming a bit of a sort of incredible sort of situation. How, how much do you think this is Chelsea planning for the future, and how much of it do you think is also being reactionary to the fact that they know that Kante and Jorginho are both out of contract next summer, and potentially want to have you know that buffer in place of players who they can maybe start to blood this year and have them ready to take over. Yeah, to be honest, I think it's more in, from my perspective it's got to be more the, the latter because if you're, um, you know, correct my pronunciation if I'm getting this right, if you're Cassidy, I mean, why would you be leaving into Milan's sort of second string, essentially, mm. the, the, you know, their, their system? Why would you, why would you up sticks to, to, to join Chelsea and, and go into to sort of the dev squad? It doesn't, I can't see the logic in that, to be honest. Um, but if you're being pitched, right, you come in, you stay around the first team for a season, similar to, to Chukwemenka, you, you, you'll, you'll get games uh, here and there and we'll sort of groom you for, for this role next season, then I can maybe understand it a little bit more. Mm. Of course, the flip side to that is you've already got a lot of midfielders at Chelsea. Um, as we said, you know, yes, you've got Kante and Kovacic around at the moment, but Jorginho is still around, uh, despite there being still some interest from 
Juventus there. Um, obviously, you've got Conor Gallagher, who who took always was almost a sort of stance had softened by sort of last sort of press conference because in in the summer when we were out in America, you know, it was very much you know Connor's. Connor is is in. Tuchel is going to give him his chance. You know, there's been a conversation between Gallagher and Tuchel, and then Tuchel told Gallagher that you're in you're in the squad this season. It was a little bit of a different take in the last press conference, um, which was intriguing and probably something just to keep an eye on. Um, and obviously, as we said, we've got lots of cheat. Gilmore's still around, even though I think it's it's likely he heads out on loan, and Ampadu is still around too. So there are a lot of midfielders currently in the building, um, but if you are pitching to a player to get him in especially at his age, you know, he's 19, approaching 20. I mean, I can't see how Chelsea get him to agree to come if if the pitch is come and play for our development squad, please, because <laughs> we, would quite, we would quite not, you know, we don't want to be in another relegation battle on the final day. So could you come and join us, please, in PL2? I mean, that can't be the pitch. So I imagine it is a, it is a first team squad role this season with, uh, with an eye to, to being integrated as, as, as they go. Mm. And one final name I think we have to discuss. I don't think there's too much more to add than what's been said before, but Wesley Fofana, it sounds like he's now formally handed a transfer request um, based on reports today. Do you think this one's probably going to get done? I do. I thought it's going to get done for a while, to be honest. I was expecting Chelsea to go back in with that third official bid uh, last week, and that hasn't happened. It sounds like uh, what Chelsea's sort of running through at the moment is, is intermediaries to just get to a point where... Um, well, when that third official bid does go in, that Leicester accept it. They don't want a, another sort of bid rejected. Um, so I think it will get done. It's uh, it's going to be for an awful lot of money, um, but it's what Thomas Tuchel wants. Thomas Tuchel wants a uh, another centre back. That obviously will have a knock on effect on on other centre backs at the club. Um, you know, as I was told, you know, there are a lot of clubs across Europe keeping an eye on, on Trevor Chalobah's situation because he. His game time, you know, I did think it was interesting at the weekend, actually, um, with Reece starting at right centre-back. Maybe that you'd think that was probably, you know, potentially a role for Trevor. And, and then when Azpilicueta came on ahead of him as well, you know, you are, if you're, I imagine, I imagine, you know, this is me sort of speculating, but I'm imagining if you're Trevor Chalabar, you're looking at it going, hmm, maybe, and with Fofana potentially coming, maybe, I, uh, maybe I'll have to make a change here. So, um, mm-hmm. so that'd be one to keep an eye on. But, uh, but yeah, it, there's no doubt Fafana is an excellent player. Um, he's young. He, he could be a Chelsea defender for seven, eight years. And I think at that point, the money, yes, it's going to be an awful lot of money. But if you're planning for this guy to be part uh, mainstay of your defence for years ahead, then you can justify it given his age. Mm. No, I definitely would agree. And I think that's a fair, that's a fair description. Um, any final just outgoings that people should be aware of? Any other names that you know might be a surprise name outgoing or incoming? Uh, Marcus Alonso wants to join Barcelona. Don't know oh, if anyone's heard really? Of I'm sure. <laughs> well, look, I thought I'd say, you know, I've actually just um, probably in the last half hour, actually, I think a piece has gone live on, on Football London looking at uh, sort of rounding up the potential exits. There's still a lot of players that go out. Look, Kepa still wants to get out. Um, uh, obviously, mentioned Alonso. You know, there's Hudson Odoi situation is very fluid at the moment. He's he's keen to move on. Billy Gilmore has has loan offers. Chris, uh, you know, Hakim Ziyech is keen to go if, if he can find a move because you know he hasn't played in either of the opening two games. Mm. Um, and then Emerson has interest from West Ham, and, and then you get to the other sort of more forgotten men of Batshuayi, Ross Barkley, Kennedy, who I did see at Colham the other day, uh, so he is still around. Um, Baba Raman, so yeah, Baba Raman. Um, 
So there is a there's still a group of players that Chelsea probably need to, to shift out before the window closes because we know what these guys can do. We know that their ceilings probably isn't what Chelsea need them to be, um, and it it just makes sense at this point to to, to shake hands and move on. I don't mm-hmm. think there's a, a need to to do what the old regime probably would have done with players like Ross Barkley and uh, Batshuayi and give them a one year deal and try and get them out on loan again. I just, I just think it's time to break that cycle. And it's now time for the quiz. Adam, how are you feeling? Feeling good. I'm feeling confident. Um... And it's now time for the quiz. Adam, how are you feeling? Feeling good. I'm feeling confident. Um, Hopefully it's not ego, but yeah, hopefully I'll do all right. Marvellous. That's what we like to hear. So for everyone, again, this is the first time we've done the quiz, so we'll set the ground rules up for everyone. There's going to be 90 seconds to try and answer five questions on Chelsea Football Club uh, across the history. They are completely random questions. I generate each one each week for everyone. There's no attempt to try and be biased to give anyone easy questions, as Adam will soon find out. Uh, <laughs> and the aim is to finish them with as many correct answers as possible, but also as much spare time as possible. Incorrect answers yield a 10-second time penalty. So don't just go through and just say pass to everything as that will not get you a win score. And uh, I think, yeah, maybe if there, is, if there is five incorrect answers, I think there may also have to be an extra time penalty added to it to uh, ensure that, you know, fairness. But I've got the timer ready in front of me. So, Adam? Yes. Breath? <laughs> are, are, are you feeling ready? Uh, now I've heard the rules, I'm not as confident. So let's see how this goes. Marvellous. Okay. Well, we'll begin in three, two, one. Who scored Chelsea's first Champions League goal in the 2011-2012 campaign? Uh, Didier Drogba? Nope. The answer we were looking for was David Luiz. How many cup finals did Didier Drogba score in for Chelsea Football Club? Seven? Nope. The answer we were looking for is nine. Which team did Chelsea beat 8-0 at Stamford Bridge in 2012-2013? Aston Villa. Yeah, that's correct. Who was Thomas Tuchel's first match in charge of against Chelsea? Wolves. Yeah, well, the Hampton Wanderers will give you that. And finally, how many goals did Frank Lampard score for Chelsea Football Club? 211. That's correct. So, do you want to have a guess at your at how much time was left? Uh, I've got to be a good forty seconds. Close. You had 30 sec- 36 seconds left on the timer. You got three correct answers and two incorrect answers. So the two incorrect means that we take. Uh, there's a twenty second time penalty. So your okay. final score is sixteen seconds remaining, which I don't think oh. is that bad, to be honest. Um, no, I will, uh, I will take that. Um, I was aided by the fact I remember I was at that 8-0 against Aston Villa uh, as a fan. So that was helpful. Yeah, uh, the, the, the other question that nearly made it into that is who was the player who got an assist on their full, on their debut? The Lucas Pearson. It was Lucas Pearson, the man who, uh, the man, the myth, the legend. He also, uh, he won a, did, he, did he take a penalty and miss it? He, yeah, he, he won the he won a penalty and then missed it. And if he'd have scored it, he would have, I think, become 
the youngest player in Premier League history to score and assist as a substitute. Um, which, you know, it was a sad, sad thing for him. Obviously, I'm sure he might, would have liked what might have been, what played might have that been. accolade, indeed. And yeah, for Drogba, it was nine cup, fi- nine cup final goals. Uh, again, if you, you know, it would have been seven if you were discounting a rather important one in Munich and also uh, a Community final kill? Was that counting? I was count. Yes, that was included. In the uh, okay, okay. But you know, it is one of those things. But yeah, I don't think that sixteen seconds is a bad scoreline. Obviously, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, you know, in a couple of weeks' time, you may be bottom of the leaderboard. But for now, you are top. <laughs> so, I feel like you know. How, how do you feel being top of the leaderboard? Oh, it's it's made my week. It's it's a bit like at the very beginning of the Premier League season when. No, when I feel like Bournemouth. Bournemouth, yeah, exactly. Bournemouth, top for a week. Great. Exactly, yeah. You know, you, you, you claim the accolade, but then suddenly the results start turning in. And before you know it, you're suddenly <laughs> mired in 17th batting relegation. But it's been great fun, Adam, as always. And I'm sure, again, I will collaborate with you soon on some Definitely. more content. Do you want to let people know where they can find you? Yeah, just search uh, at Adam Newson on uh, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I mean, it comes up on Instagram, I think, as well, if you go with that. So, uh so yeah, do follow. Uh, always appreciate it. And I say, hopefully, uh, I provide some decent content from time to time for people. I mean, there's some decent content and occasionally some decent memes. And yeah. uh, <laughs> for everyone else, we'll be back again next week with another guest, another person taking on the quiz. And also looking back against Chelsea's results against Leeds, looking back at any further transfer business that's been done, and also exploring how Emma Hayes' side got on when they visited the International Champions Cup in the CSW podcast. I've been Rob Prattley. This has been Believe in Chelsea, and I hope you have a great day.